And I think of the average wage for someone in the trades and everybody I know in the trades after a few years of experience is making 70, 80, $100,000 a year. So, you know, just looking at that alone, why are we discouraging people from a, a life in the trades? It's a wonderful career, wonderful industries, great people. Welcome to Diesel Stories, where we sit down with professionals across the industry to hear about their journey. I'm Jacob Finley, along with Chris O'Brien. Today, we're talking with Jamie Irvine, consultant and host of the Heavy Duty Parts Report podcast. Okay, Jamie Irvine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a real pleasure to speak with you. You are in this unique position in the industry and have this unique insight. And uh, I've always kind of wondered, where did Jamie come from? Let's jump into it. I really, I really want to know. So you're in Canada. That's right. Born and raised in Canada. Uh, I grew up in, in the Maritimes, so on the Atlantic coast. We're very close to the U.S. border. In fact, I had a lot of friends on the U.S. side. We were back and forth, and that was pre-9-11. So all you had to do is just pull up and show them your license and you were across the line. And that was it? Yeah, it was easy. The Maritimes, is that like uh, New Brunswick? New Brunswick is where I was born, yeah. I, I was born in Campbellton and we lived in Moncton and Perth Andover, a couple of the towns in, in New Brunswick. And um, it was uh, the kind of place to grow up. It was right in a time period when we were just before the internet and kids ran out and played outside and uh, mums and dads told their kids, you know, don't come back in the house until five o'clock. And as uh, you know, one comedian said, you know, Jimmy got hit by a car and we just sat on the front step and waited until mom let us in at five. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful way to grow up. I, I often say that the way, you know, the place that I grew up, um, it was, it was very much like the generation before me. And so I got a lot of the benefits of, of that, uh, just, just, you know, being able to be outside playing with kids, being friends. We were out in the country at one point too. So then we lived on like a hundred acres of, of prime forest land. And so me and my, my buddies, we just built ramps and rode our bikes and climbed trees and chased uh, wildlife and they chased us and it was good fun. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. The world has definitely changed. I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about this new law that the state of Utah passed essentially to make what you just described legal again for kids to actually be able to just go out and play during the day because apparently there have been some high, highly publicized arrests of parents for child neglect for letting their kid play at the park on their own. One of the uh, things I heard is one of the fastest growing sectors before COVID was outdoor play areas for kids. Hmm. Yeah, it was a different, it was a different world then. And, um, you know, I, I was a very social person, very extroverted. So my parents and I did not see eye to eye on how much I should be allowed to, how much freedoms I should be allowed to have. And I started work very young. I uh, started working uh, for a farmer. His name was James Brown, but he wasn't uh, a soul man at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, I started at 13 years old working oh, really? in the fields and picking potatoes. You know, I made 85 cents a barrel and that's a full wooden barrel of potatoes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we'd work six days a week for three weeks straight and we'd make about $300. And that's that's if you were fast. Different times. I got a second job at 14 or roughly 15 working at a grocery store, packing groceries and stocking shelves. And before I was done high school, I had three jobs. 
I was working at that uh, grocery store. I was working in a mechanic shop and I was working for a computer store. So computers had just become a thing. Wow. So uh, you've kind of found the intersection of the mechanic shop and computers and uh, potentially potatoes may come in in the future, right? Could be. Like if you can really <laughs> align the stars. So is that is that was it a family business, the mechanic shop, or was that? No, it was a cooperative. It was a cooperative education program through high school. I actually got all my credits early, so then um, like I had all my sciences and language arts and all of that done early. And so I worked these jobs and I negotiated uh, with my principal to get school credit for these extra jobs that I had because I just couldn't keep up with the the pace. Yeah, I kind of finished out grade 12 working these three different jobs and getting kind of such a, a wide range of experience. It, it was good. Interesting. I was uh, mountain biking this morning with my son and my nephew, and my nephew is 17. He works at Discount Tire um, as a tire tech, right? And he was telling me that uh, their high school doesn't even have a uh, any kind of auto shop program anymore, and he's super interested in doing that, and it's a source of frustration for him. So once, I mean, that's another difference, right, between how you grew up and how the kids today are growing up. Well, actually, the the we we lived in a very poor province, very uh, poor area, and our school had cut the automotive shop. So that's why really? we were going out on work experience to Hence other the shops. They had Got the facility, it. the lifts were there, but they didn't have funding for a shop teacher and all of that. So yeah, okay, yeah, I feel I feel the the kids' pain, and then there's so much focus on post-secondary education in the sciences and in um, liberal arts and things like that, but not as much, even back when I was a kid, not as much focus on the trades, which is a, a real a real problem today. And uh, it's something that definitely was was a problem. You know, I think it has its roots in when I was young, which is over 20, 25 years ago. Do you think, uh, this is just parenthetical, but the term blue collar, do you think that's, uh, has that become uh, almost like a pejorative term or like uh, something with bad connotations? I don't see too many parents, you know, bringing the family all together and celebrating that Johnny is going to become an electrician or Sandra is going to become a diesel tech. I, I don't, I don't see that in my own experience. I haven't seen that in society and it's really, it's really a crying shame. I know in, in Canada, the average salary for someone with a four-year degree is about $48,000 a year Canadian. That, you know, maybe translates into even less money US because your money is worth more than ours. And I think of the average wage for someone in the trades and everybody I know in the trades after a few years of experience is making 70, 80, $100,000 a year. So, you know, just looking at that alone, why are we discouraging people from a, a life in the trades? It's a wonderful career, wonderful industries, great people. Yeah, I, I don't get it, but it's the way it's gone the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I was reading this article about uh, whether or not the blue collar term still fit and so forth. And um, uh, the author of the article was suggesting that another term, I don't know how seriously we should take this, but is industrial artisans. And <laughs> but it, it has its roots in um, auto shop and those classes used to be called the industrial arts, right? So, and it was uh, not something that was uh, discouraged and so forth. So, but what happened, uh, what happened with you? So you're part of this co-op, you're coming out of high school. Um, what did you go into when you graduated? Did you go get a four-year degree? Did you take that path? So I graduated early. I was 17 years old and I packed up, I, I had applied to several universities. I was accepted to everyone that I applied to. 
And um, I I packed up all my things and I moved as far away from my family as I could. So I moved to the West Coast to Vancouver. That's a long way. So no, I, di- I, didn't, I didn't go to university. It's like a different country. Well, I mean, if you were in Europe, it would have been like 20 countries right. away. Uh, well, yeah, because <laughs> the, the sheer distance. You have Western Canada and then, you yeah, know, coast to coast. the great people in Manitoba. But there's like a huge kind of chasm there second largest landmass in the world I, I and i often tell people if i if you know if there was more land i would have kept going but the pacific ocean was a big barrier to getting to japan <laughs> were you a fan of like anne of green gables and stuff you know they totally romanticized that area of canada eastern canada oh yeah i i love the maritimes uh the it's a beautiful place to live it's a great place to grow up and it's a great place to retire a uh, tough place to live as a as a working adult because there's just not as much industry. You know, it was a dominant industry back in the 16 and 1700s building wooden ships. It had a wonderful mm-hmm. mining uh, and industrial uh, sector and forestry sector and fishing sector until they mined it, logged it and fished it all out. Mm-hmm. It's a tough place to to live, but that that's not really why I left. Um you know, you're going to hear some big mistakes I made pretty pretty uh, soon in my story. And and the reason I was getting away from family is, you know, unfortunately, I grew up in a pretty difficult situation. Um, I never met my biological father. My stepfather, who him and I are great friends today, but at that time, I think he was very ill-equipped to handle someone like me with my personality. I'm very extrovert, very dominant, disagreeable. So it, it it was a tough situation. My mom suffers from some mental health issues, and some of the things that happened as a child were were very tough. And um, you know, I, I I know that there's kids out there who had a worse ride than I did, but trauma and abuse comes in all forms, and some of the forms it comes in is is very you know obvious, like physical abuse or sexual abuse. And uh, some of it's less obvious when it's psychological and um, when there's some things going on and, and being involved in a, in a group of people that, you know, well-meaning in many ways, but unfortunately just some bad stuff happened. And, and so I was a little messed up and I just wanted to get away from it all. And so I, I met a girl and I got a ticket to the West Coast. I thought my biological father was from Vancouver. Maybe I'd fly out there and meet him, or I don't know, maybe I had a romanticized, naive idea of what would happen, but uh, I just got on a plane. And the day that all my uh, friends were at their graduation ceremony getting their, their certificate, uh, high school diploma, I just told the uh, principal, just mail it to me out in Vancouver. And I was, I was actually waiting for a connecting flight in Toronto while they were all on the stage getting their diplomas. So I just, I couldn't wait to get out. And uh, I got out. Wow. And your girlfriend went with you? She was from Vancouver, actually. And uh, yeah, I jumped uh, I jumped out of the <laughs> I jumped out of the pot into the fire with that one. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> Are you still with her is the question. <laughs> no, no. We actually ended up getting married at 19. And um, she was a mentally ill person as well who uh, had what I believe was borderline personality disorder. Um, at the time I had no idea, but I, I was suffering from depression and I didn't, I didn't know that. And, um, it was just, you know, two, two kids that were not prepared for real life and jumped in way too quickly. And, um, you know, one of the things that served me very well is I learned how to work. So I got out to the West coast and I got a job right away, got another job. 
I didn't really enjoy the work that I was doing. So then I got into sales and I was selling high-end suits as an 18-year-old. And I had all these clients that were wealthy from West Vancouver, which is one of the richest neighborhoods in uh, Canada. And I did, I did great. And um, I actually was at a point where I was probably going to head to France and start going to the buying shows for high-end clothing. But I did not fit into that group of people. They, their interest didn't align with mine. And so it, even though I was doing well as an 18-year-old kid, I needed something else. And so my, this girl that I got together with and ended up, she was my first wife. Um, she had a, a brother who knew somebody who remanufactured pneumatic controls for trucking and logging and mining equipment. And they needed someone in the shop. And so at 18 years old, I got my first job. They put me on a sandblaster for three days and tried to break me. I didn't break. And so they hired me. <laughs> sandblaster. <Nice. laughs> oh, man. I had to paint tires for my first few weeks to see if they could break me. And once I was like, all right, you got any more tires to paint? It was like painting tires, sandblasting is probably the equivalent. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that I think back to those days picking potatoes in the fields at 13 and working 12 hours a day, six days a week for no money, sandblasting inside in a, yeah. in a temperature controlled environment where I only had to work eight hours and it was only Monday to Friday. That was easy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's If you've dug a ditch or you've done landscaping, anything uh, away from something more difficult. I can't imagine. So you go into that. Um, and my first job was uh, cleaning out horse tables. Um, but then I got into grinding rust off commercial refrigeration equipment, which was great. Polishing chrome. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, so, you, so, so you're in Vancouver. You land. And you've been there ever since, right? Western Canada? I was there. Yeah, I've been in Western Canada ever since. I was there in Vancouver for 18 years. So I, I worked for this remanufacturer for 10 years. And uh, became I very quickly became a shop foreman at 19. Uh, around 20, almost 21, I got divorced. Any kids? No, no kids, no kids with her. Um, so I, yeah, I got divorced and, and I had, my career was starting to take off. I was an operations manager and then I got into sales and I worked for that company for 10 years. So at 21, I decided that, you know, I went from my parents' place right to, getting with this girl. I never really had a chance to have any fun. I was just been working since I was 13. And I just uh, started hanging around with the wrong crowd, started partying really hard. And I was full of energy. I was very, I was able to party all night. I'd go to bed at five, get up at seven, work an eight hour shift, you know, go take a quick nap. And by, you know, a little after supper could go back at it again. And that just led to four years of just the worst time of my life. And I made so many mistakes. Well, it's tough because your your brain's not even fully developed yet at that point. No, right? I started doing drugs and I started hanging out with people that were involved in crime. And before I knew it, I was riding motorcycles with Hell's Angels. Not that I ever became one, but was around that group of people. I uh, got myself, yeah, got myself into a little bit of, of trouble. I, I got kind of swept up in a, a group of people that all got arrested and they just charge everybody and let the courts figure it out. And uh, I didn't do anything really wrong. In fact, I actually helped the person that was the victim of those people's crime, which in the end actually worked out because then he uh, refused to testify against me and the whole thing got thrown out. And no, no, like I don't have a criminal record or anything like that. It just wrong place, wrong people, wrong time and not good. But, you know, I'm, I'm in my, my twenties and, uh, I'm with this other woman who's, she was, a she was a, <laughs> an interesting character and, uh, we, we had a very dysfunctional relationship. And then all of a sudden she says, 
I'm pregnant. And I said, will you marry me? Because that's what you're supposed to do. And I never knew my biological father, so there was absolutely no way I was not going to be in my child's life. And uh, we got married. That lasted a year and four months. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, a year and four days. And um, all of a sudden, I'm 24. I have a six-month-old baby girl, and I've been divorced twice. I went bankrupt. I got a nasty drug addiction. I had these charges I had to deal with. And meanwhile, in my career, I'm getting promoted, and I just became the national sales manager for this company. But they have no idea necessarily what's going they, on. They did, but um, this this actually kind of circles around to why I love the trucking industry, the heavy-duty industry, is that I never had a dad that was a real father figure in my life. And so these men were all stepping up at these these like critical times to help me get to the next level, get to the next level. So I have some great mentors and they would come to me and they'd like, Jamie, like we all partied too, but you got to slow down. Like you, you, you're going to, you're going to really hurt yourself. And, you know, eventually I just hit this point in time and it was a Saturday night. Well, technically Sunday morning, it was four in the morning. My motorcycle broke down. I ran out of money and I went over to a couple of friends and they were older than me. And I walked into this apartment and they were laying on a couch at like two couches watching a biker movie. They were both bikers. They weren't Hell's Angels, but they were bikers. They were eating macaroni and wieners out of a pot with two forks. And the first question they asked me when I walked through the door was, hey, those girls you were hanging out with, did you bring them over? And, you know, one guy was like in his 30s. The other guy was in his 50s. And I'm in my 20s. So the girls I was hanging out with were 20. And I just thought to myself, it's such a weird question and so inappropriate. And I looked around this dingy apartment, I looked out the front door and I saw their two Harleys and I mentally calculated that the guy in his 30s uh, didn't have a relationship with his children, the guy in his 50s, nobody in his family would even talk to him. And I realized that I was going way harder than they ever did at my age and that my best case scenario was what these guys, the way they were living their lives. And I was like, I have got to make a change. And I said, nope. And I turned around on my heels, walked out the door. I looked up into the sky and said, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it your way from now on. And uh, cut my long hair. Took me a while to like get the beard under control. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just said, I've got to live my life the way I know that you're supposed to, right? With good Christian values and just common sense, right? Work hard, take care of people that you love, get, stay away from drugs, like some pretty common sense stuff. And so I started the process of putting my life back together. And, you know, of course, like I said, I'd been bankrupt. So now I have years to rebuild my credit. I don't have a university education, so I've got to find ways to advance my career. I got to surround myself with a whole new set of friends. And, um, you know, it's kind of like Ross from Friends. <laughs> I just married every girl that I was with. So the third girl, I married her, and we just are about to celebrate 15 years uh, in a couple of days. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. And so my, my daughter, you know, she was just a baby and she was two when uh, my wife, my current wife and I got together. And, um, you know, we, we say that our aunt, cause her birthday is today actually. So she just turned 17. So we say that June is our family anniversary month, right? Because uh, it was the, the month we all came together as a family and we've been together ever since. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. They say you're the average of the five to 10 people you spend the most time with, right? And that can either drag you down or lift you up. Yeah. And, and one of those uh, kind of mentoring moments was a guy who I learned how to be a sales professional from. And he always used to say, if you want to soar with the eagles, you can't hang out with turkeys. Right. <laughs> and exactly. uh, I had been a turkey for a few years and just 
made such a mess of my life. And, you know, I mean, it got so bad at one point, I didn't even have a home. I was living in a warehouse. Like, it was bad. It was really bad. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that the people, the salt of the earth people from the industry, they saw potential in me. And like I said, these mentors just stepped up at these key moments and said, Jamie, like, I see in you greatness. You can do better and and let me help you. And so every step of the way, I did get the help I needed. And that was awesome. By changing the average of who I spent time with, um, my life rapidly improved and I got back on track. But um, I've spent the last 15 years catching up because a lot of my colleagues, while I was making a mess of things, were getting educated, getting into the trades, building businesses, buying homes, you know, and I had done none of that. So I ha- I have, I've had to play catch up for, for a long time. And, you know, people look at me now and they would never even imagine what I have been through early in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I count me as one of those. I had no idea. That's, that's amazing, Jamie. I, I just got done reading the history, uh, speaking of discount tire, the history of discount tire. And, um, one of the ways that they built that business was essentially on stories like yours. Like there's a lot of good people out there with, with good work ethics and who recognize good principles and good values when they see them, they may just not be in a position in their life where they're living what they know. Right. And, um, so they would pluck these people up and, and uh, give them a chance and just flourish. And that company is known for promoting from, with, from within. They used to be one of my clients uh, back in my public accounting days. I would uh, work in their headquarters and you had to wear a suit and tie and everything. And most of the people in their headquarters started as, Chris, what do you call them? Tire jockeys? <laughs> tire buster. That's what I use. Tire busters, yeah. <laughs> tire busters. Um, and there's so many, um, we talk, uh, one of our core values um, at Full Bay is, we want to hire high functioning people. So these are people with that kind of potential that maybe society overlooks and so forth. And maybe they don't go on the normal path, but at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Because they they find the, the path and they can become major contributors. So anyway, so that's awesome story. Your past is, is not necessarily defining your future, but you have to decide to learn from your mistakes. And um, as we go into my story, I, I've had opportunities to help others, but I have a prerequisite before I will help you. You have to demonstrate to me that you've given it everything you've got and you're coming up short. If you've given it everything you've got and you come up short, I will help you until I have nothing left to give you. But if you're not going to meet me part way and, and give what you've got, then I'm not going to help you at all because then you're just you're just enabling bad bad behavior and you're just actually helping someone uh, go down a road of disaster even faster. I mean, the last thing you want to do is give fifty thousand dollars to a cokehead. He'll be dead by the end of the week. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's talk about your story. So, how do you go from that to so you you marry your now wife of fifteen years? How do you go from that to what you've accomplished today? What took place? Well, I mean, it started working on me and getting getting some of the trauma and some of the things that were in my past dealt with, which took many years. But I just I just stuck to a couple core things. Um, one, work hard, treat people with re- as much respect as you can. Uh, you know, look for ways of of adding value and con- making contribution, and don't be so worried about getting paid back for it. Uh, because I think that if you do that consistently in the right way, you know, 
what you put out 10 times comes back to you every time. So I started to advance in my career. You know, I've been with that company for about 10 years, that remanufacturing company. It was time for me to spread my wings. So a mentor who had taught me sales introduced me to one of the largest uh, parts distribution companies in Canada, went to work as a sales account manager, really learned how to be a sales professional, won some awards, you know, made a lot of money. And, um, and then 2008 happens and everything starts crashing and I can see the writing on the wall this company's not going to make it in in the province I was living in, in, in British Columbia. And they were starting the controlled shutdown of corporate stores. So I got a partner. I took every dime I'd, I had made and I invested it in this company with him. And four months in, as the whole world is falling apart with the 2008-9 recession, he comes to me and says, Jamie, I thought I wanted to do this. I really don't. I want to go in a different direction. Do you want to change? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. That's not That's not what I ever wanted to do. And so he says, well, I'm out. And uh, my wife and I tried to make it work. And that business just fell apart really quickly. So what were you guys doing? Well, we launched a consulting business, ironically, which is uh, 10 years later, I got to actually do what I want to do. But um, the, the problem really at the time was that we were, we were young and, and inexperienced. And you know, we had this vision of sales and marketing consulting. And then he just totally wanted to go in a different direction with marketing. And he ended up building one of the largest um, marketing companies that does like big vinyl installations on highways and sides of buildings and things like that. So he did really good, but I didn't want to go down that road. And we just, we just couldn't acquire customers in that time period fast enough. And so all of a sudden, all the money's gone and I'm broke again. And, and you're alone. And I'm alone. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, he was supposed to do half the work and it just, the whole thing just fell apart really quickly. So nobody's hiring in heavy duty and I needed to do something. And, uh, I got an opportunity to spend my last $700 on buying a utility trailer. And this guy that I knew that was in contracting loaned me the tools. He trained me and all I needed to do was use that utility trailer to put the tools in and, and, and tow them to the job sites. And my wife and I had like a Ford Explorer that could tow the trailer. So we started a contracting business doing exterior building cleaning, which is like nothing to do with heavy duty. And it was the last thing I wanted to do for work. But I had a mentor step up and hand me a book called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. And that, that book teaches you how to systemize a business, even if it is a contracting business. And so, you know, we spent our last 700 bucks. We were completely broke. We worked hard for two weeks. We made enough for our first, you know, like house payment. And uh, seven years later, we had built that business up into a very, very going concern. And we ended up selling it to a competitor who wanted to learn how did we go from nothing to where we were living in Alberta, 600 miles away, running the business remotely and having all these people working for us in Vancouver. How did you do that? He's like, I'm 55. I can't get off the tools. And I need to retire at some point. You need to teach me. And I said, well, I'm not going to teach you. You can buy my business and then I'll teach you the systems. Like if you want to buy it, that's that's what we'll do. So he bought it and I got to be a consultant and I got to teach him how, what, how we do what we did. Uh, my wife became the COO of that company. She still works for them to this day, running the entire business remotely. And the guy who bought us only works like one day a week and is basically retired. So you helped him retire and you got us sold. So when did you guys end up in Alberta? That was uh, late 2015. So you moved to Alberta. 
Yeah, we moved to yeah, we were yeah, we well we moved to Alberta in 2015 and then we sold the business January 1st, 2016. And um just backing up a little bit. So you went to work was it a parts distributorship before this? Yeah. So I was a remanufacturer, then a parts yeah. distributor. Then I started my first business that quickly failed and started our contracting business. Okay. And we did it for 7 years, so from 20 uh 2009 to 2016, sold at January 1st, 2016. And when you were getting into marketing um, and your partner ended up going more like the large vinyl installation direction and so forth, were you wanting to get into the kind of the parts distributorship marketing side of things or what? Well, we had just left heavy duty up working for a heavy duty parts distributor and both yeah. of us had worked at that remanufacturer so and at this parts distribution. We kind of went okay. together as a team. I was okay. in sales. He was in operations. So the idea was we would set up this consulting business and work with heavy duty companies to help them in any way that we could. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't work out. So then I had no choice but to go in a different direction. And that's where I learned that's that that time running my own business, that's where I got my university education. That's where I got my master's in how to run a business because I did it. I did it with my own money. I I bootstrapped it, built it from nothing, figured out how to systemize it, learned how to build a lead generation system, learning how to build a customer fulfillment system, learning how to build system management systems that would allow me to take a step back and not be required to be there every day for the business to operate consistently. How to control expenses, how to create top line revenue, right? How to read, how to read a PNL. Yeah. And then, and then when we sold the business, I had to learn how to do a merger acquisition. So I got a really well-rounded education in in business through that process and also it was a bit humbling because i was starting to feel really good about myself and thinking that i was all that and got knocked knocked down <laughs> in my first entrepreneurial journey and then had to had to figure it out with that second business and, and do something that i did not want to do you know cleaning gutters and power washing buildings and w- window cleaning was not my idea of like of what i where i wanted to be but it was good, honest work, and um, it, I ended up becoming very, very proud of the work that we did in that industry. Yeah, it was great. Hmm. Interesting. You're just trying to make a living, and you it's like bloomed where you plant, where you were planted, right? Yeah. So you know, we we sold the business, and then all of a sudden, when the consulting part was done, I'm too young to retire. We we were looking to buy another business, couldn't find one that was a good deal. So we put all the money into real estate, and now I need to go get a job. And one of my old bosses mm-hmm. found out where I was in Alberta, and they just happened to be working for Truck Pro, which is out of Memphis, Tennessee. They had a branch in this little town I'm living in in northern uh, Alberta, and their salesman was 70 and retiring. So he called me up and said, "Would you like to get the band back together again? Let's uh, let's go to work together. You can sell parts for me. And what do you think about that?" And I said, "Sure, let's do it." So that was that's how I got back into heavy duty in 2016. That's cool. And then, so what you're doing today is you're not at Truck Pros anymore. No, I'm not. You've, you split off. You've got the Heavy Duty Parts Report podcast. Yes. And um, have you kind of arrived like this is, this is the show. This is what you want to be doing. You're consulting, you're doing. There, there, there's a couple little steps to get to, to present day. Yeah. So I'm working as a sales account manager and right away I recognize there is no future in this job. Maybe in the next 10 years, but 20 years out, there's no future in this. Where is this Red Deer? Uh, no, it's nor- north of Red Deer, but Red Deer was one of the, we, ha- we had a location in Red Deer. So we had one in Calgary, Red Deer, Edmonton, and Edson, where I live. Wow. So you were pretty far north. Yeah. We're, we're like 
four or five hundred miles north of the uh, Montana border and the Canadian border. Wow, yeah. must be gorgeous up there. Okay, it, it, it's yeah, I'm, I'm right by the Rockies, so it's the first time I've ever lived landlocked. But at least I've got the Rocky Mountains there. Yeah, <laughs> no oceans, <laughs> but got those beautiful mountains. Yeah, yeah. So I'm selling parts. I'm recognizing that all the things that I learned building my contracting business, how to use Google ads, how to leverage digital technology was not happening in traditional distribution of parts. I said, this is a problem. We've got to take action. I got a lot of pushback from a lot of different people. They didn't want to even talk about it. And so I thought to myself, well, how can I differentiate myself? And I kept getting asked by all these people in the contracting space, how did you build a contracting business, move away and run it remotely? So I thought, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to teach people everything I know about building a business. So I started this podcast. It eventually was called Build a Better Business. And um, it was too broad, unfortunately. So I could never get kind of through the noise of everything that's online. There's a lot of business podcasts. Yeah, a lot of business podcasts. And um, But I learned how to podcast. And I, I did 150 episodes. One of them was Michael Lee Gerber. Wow. It's so wearing the purple cool glasses that, and the white suit, yeah. everything. Yeah, it's so cool yeah. that Mike Lee Gerber, that author, I mean, I got his cell phone number in my cell phone. Like, how cool is that, right? So yeah, that's, that's cool. That's like one loop closed from my past. Nice. And I just got to a point where I'm like, this isn't working. I really wanted to get into that consulting role, but I had to do something. So I pull out my phone and I go to my podcast player and I type in heavy duty parts and it comes back with zero re- results. And there was some trucking podcasts, but nothing dedicated to heavy duty parts. And it was one of those like palm to forehead moments. Like, oh my goodness, the whole opportunity has been staring you in the face the entire time. So June 1st, 2019, I'm still working for for Truck Pros Canadian Division. Um, I launched the heavy duty parts report and I start airing episodes and it starts to pick up speed. And, you know, episode 13, I interview Tyler Robertson from Diesel Laptops. He becomes my first client. By January 1st, 2020, I've quit my job and I'm a consultant and I'm a podcast host with the Heavy Duty Parts Report. And I'm finally doing what I set out to do on January 1st, 2009. (laughs) It just took 11 years to get there. That's awesome. Well, you kept with the vision. And so what do you do? So with the consulting, um, we were talking earlier this week because you interviewed me for your podcast and um, that's taking up a huge chunk of your time. It sounds like you've been very successful in building a book of business on the consulting side. It's interesting. This is one lesson I've learned. You have this idea in your head, but as they say in the Marines, no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, and another expression is, you know, man makes a plan and God laughs. I've also heard the significance is in the planning, not in the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that you need to be open to what the market is telling you. I had a lot of cues along the way, right? I I knew business systems were important. I knew the power of digital marketing, that you could go into a space and you could completely dominate it if all your competitors were still using traditional methods of marketing and sales and promotion. I knew that I had learned all these valuable lessons and I was building this platform with the Heavy Duty Parts Report and it was, you know, self-funded. I'm just like single person by myself. It's not like I've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in seed money or millions of dollars. I just, I'm I'm bootstrapping it and it's growing fast. It's growing fast. I thought in my head, I'm going to work for Truck Pro. I'm going to build this show. I'm going to monetize the audience. I'm going to quit my job and be a podcast host. And the market said, no, that's not what is for you. What's for you is for the guests, some of them, to hire you as a consultant 
because they're watching what you're doing and they're saying, hey, if we could learn from Jamie, we could apply some of those things in our business and we could transition from the traditional sales and marketing and traditional way of distributing parts from manufacturer to distributor to end user. And maybe we can incorporate these digital tools and we could have a digital sales channel adoption and that we could you know, get our business going down the right road. And so I kept having that conversation over and over and over again. And like, like I said, Tyler Robertson hired me first. He was my first client. He's got this parts platform that he wanted some help with. And then, you know, the show just kept creating opportunities for me to have these kinds of conversations with my guests. Not everybody needs that help, but some people do. And before you knew it, I built up this really great consulting business. And now we're at a point where we have a large enough audience that we can start monetizing the audience of my show with commercials and paid advertising and sponsorships and things like that. So that has been, uh, I didn't see that happening, but I was very open to what the market wanted. You know, I was putting forth my best foot forward. I was just trying to serve the industry and make a difference. And I've been rewarded in, in just some amazing ways. It's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Yeah, that's awesome. And they say one of the keys to success in entrepreneurship is being able to pivot from plan A to the plan that eventually works uh, before you run out of resources. Absolutely. And that, and that really is my story. You know, in, in, every, in every entrepreneurial journey I've taken, I've had failure up front. But I've had determination, hard work, and um, been willing to admit, okay, maybe the way I think is wrong. What is the market telling me? And then responding to those market cues. And when you start to fill market needs that that haven't been filled in that way before, you can start to see you know rapid expansion and growth, and you know even to the point where you can get to hyper growth, which is really really a fun place to be. Before we uh, end, uh, what do you see? You're in this unique position, right, in the industry. Um, you've got the podcast, you talk to a lot of people, what, uh, what do you see are kind of the major trends going on now and where are we going to be in terms of heavy duty parts in the next three to five years? Well, I mean, COVID has accelerated everything. And so what COVID did is it forced the people who were resisting digital transformation. It forced them to do things like zoom meetings and virtual trade shows yeah. And there's a there's a new McKinsey study out that uh, says that the result of COVID on all industries is that B2B buyers are now 80% of respondents said that they are now comfortable buying up to $50,000 for a single line item digitally. That didn't exist eight, you know, 15 months ago. That was not the case. In fact, it might have been 20% that were comfortable with that. So we've had this massive fundamental shift in people's viewpoint around B2B buying. And so the digital trends around e-commerce and, and a total digital sales channel are only going to rapidly accelerate. And this is going to have an impact on the way that parts are distributed because up until now, we've had a two or even three-step system, manufacturer to wholesale distributor to retail to, to end user. I believe very strongly that some of the largest parts distribution companies in North America are owned by private equity companies. They are leveraged with debt. The right circumstances are starting to come together where I think we're going to see a, a fundamental shift from a two and three step marketplace to a one step marketplace. And so we see the rise of, of these digital tools that enable a manufacturer to sell directly to 80,000 truck shops at a much higher profit margin 
without really impacting distribution in any real significant way. And I see the value proposition that the distributors of heavy-duty parts bring to the table being eroded by also the, the advancement in technology around ACEs and PIs, which is your year, make, model, engine, serial number, uh, looking up without a serial number, but being able to do it by year, make, model, as well as PIs information, which enables you to have all of the weights and dimensions and to be able to ship it with e-commerce. And so as heavy-duty simultaneously adopts a more one-step marketplace approach with digital e-commerce, as well as develops the ACEs and PIs information to a level that enables them to do that. And then the third element of the demographic cliff that we're going over with baby boomers retiring and all of the baby boomers being pretty much out of the job market by, by 2030, all the experienced parts people who bring a value proposition to parts distribution, their contribution is one, being eroded by the fact that they're all retiring and there isn't enough people to replace them that are knowledgeable. And two, there's technology now that makes it so that people will be able to just use a click of a, of a mouse or a mobile app and identify parts really quickly. So all of these big forces are coming together to dramatically change the way that parts go from manufacturer to end user. And this has a big impact on these parts distribution companies because now their real only value proposition is they have inventory on the ground close to the location. Problem is, is that the locations that those companies have invested in are retail locations, very expensive, and um, in these prime retail areas where there's through traffic. Well, you don't need that in a one-step uh, marketplace where people are buying online. You can have these black sites that are just like warehouses. Who knows where they are? They're maybe even more centrally located than the retail stores and the parts just get delivered out. So I see this big shift and I see this. We saw this happen in other industries. We saw what Amazon did to Sears. We saw what Netflix did to Blockbuster. You know, Blockbuster went down because they were uh, leveraged with debt. And when the 2008 crisis happened, they didn't have enough capital to acquire customers fast enough. And Netflix had cash. So we're going to see this big shift. And, and then we have the other forces like vertical integration from manufacturers and electrification of the industry. So this isn't a blue collar industry anymore. This is a high tech industry. This is all about data. It's all about who can create the, le the, the least amount of friction in the buying journey for, for end users, fleets, repair shops, mobile mechanics, and owner operators that do their own repair. I love this industry and I love the people in it because they're the salt of the earth. But it, if we don't adapt and we, and we hold to the, to the strictly traditional means of, of distributing parts and repairing vehicles, we, we're going to get left behind. You know, it's funny. I never met my biological father, but I, I met my aunt for the first time when I was 40, about a year, a year and a half ago. Turns out my biological father is a truck driver. So I guess it's in the blood. <laughs> I'm in, I'm never leaving heavy duty again. I, I plan on being in this industry, you know, for the rest of my life because I love it. But I, 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 I just want to encourage everyone, especially like second year or uh, second generation owners of companies, the way your dad built this company is not the way that you're going to be able to run it. And if you want to stay competitive, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because there's a whole bunch of massive changes that need to happen in the way you do business. One of my favorite things that I heard a guy say about this is either Amazon learns our business or we learn Amazon's business. It's really up to us. And so um, there, there's these really powerful forces at play and things are changing rapidly and we've got to keep up and we've got to invest 
invest, invest, invest in our companies and to get there because the people who do have the opportunity to carve out really, really important niches where they're going to be able to serve at a higher level. And I think you're going to see a real shift in who the major players are in our industry, both on the independent service channel and even potentially on the truck OE side. It's, it's, I think right now it's up for grabs for anybody who does it better than the rest. Anyone who can execute on the electrification. Yeah. Adapt or die. Absolutely. That's a great, uh, great note to end on, right? Nice positive note. How about this? Pivot from uh, what's working now to what uh, is needed in the future before you run out of resources. And uh, it's very doable. You just have to, uh, like you said, shun your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to leave your comfort zone. Yeah. And I, and I would say when in doubt, focus on your customer and ask yourself, why should that customer do business with me instead of a competitor? And if you don't have a really good answer, you need to create one. The good thing is there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency in the way we've been doing business for decades. So there is nothing but opportunity to innovate, innovate the lead generation process, innovate the customer fulfillment process, innovate the way that we do business and take friction out of that, that, that buying journey for your customer. And if you can do those things consistently, you have an opportunity to, for disruption, or maybe you don't even disrupt, but you fill a need that otherwise has not been filled very well in the past. And that's all it takes. The heavy duty parts report is a great example of that. We really didn't do anything different than a lot of other people in the podcast space. All we did is just pick a niche that hadn't been served very well. We've served it to the best of our ability and we've been rewarded for it. So it's possible regardless of where you are in the supply chain, manufacturer, distributor, repair shop, and fleet. Right. Just show up and execute. That's half the battle right there. All right. Well, Jamie Irvine, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to hear your story and get to know you better. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. I'm usually the one asking the questions. So this has been a really nice experience. And if anyone wants to check out our podcast, please go to heavydutypartsreport.com. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diesel Stories Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check out dieselstories.com for more episodes.